Our Father, we're thankful again tonight for the indwelling Holy Spirit and for the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ and for your sovereign plan of history. And we ask that we would get a better glimpse of that sovereign plan of history tonight as we continue to study these great events of early biblical history. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, I want to just kind of review. So we had uh, quite a few people uh, absent and so on. And I want to go back a moment and paint the larger picture for, for, for a bit here. Because I want you to appreciate that these early events in Scripture shape the whole rest of the Bible. The whole rest of the Bible is, is really shaped by, by what's going on here. And you, you, temp, you, you uh, mess with this part of the Scriptures and you're going to mess with the rest of the Bible because Jesus, the apostles, the later writers of the Bible all go back to these texts. So you can't, because we may be intellectually embarrassed or something about these texts in, our, in the last two or three hundred years of history, we can't just sweep them aside and then go on and say, oh, everything's cool. It doesn't work that way because we shoot ourselves in the foot when we do that. I'm sure those of you who've been with us for a number of weeks are aware of that. But these three events that we're looking at, the creation, the fall, and the flood, almost by themselves encapsulate the gospel, if you think about it. These three events orient us to the correct thinking we need for the rest of the Bible. Creation orients us to the greater creature distinction. The creation is the ground of everything else that goes on, including redemption. And that's why the great creeds of the church do not begin with Jesus. The great creeds of historic Christian faith, I believe in God the Father Almighty, and so on. And what does it say in that creed? I believe in God the Father Almighty the maker of heaven and earth. And why, why does the church do that? Well, it does that because that's the starting point. It isn't redemption that's the starting point. The starting point is creation. Then we have redemption. So creation shapes everything. And we said that creation shapes what you think about man, God, what you think about man, what you think about nature, and what you think about the relationship of all three of those. It's all shaped by what happens in creation. And then we spent considerable time going to the next event, the fall. And our whole point in the fall was that it's distinct from creation. A very important point. It sounds so trivial, so elementary, so obvious to anybody that reads the Bible. But the conclusion that comes out of this thing is earth-shaking. Because what it says is that for an interval between the creation and the fall, the universe was good and free of sin and free of death and free of evil. There was an interval of time. Creation and the fall were separate. That's tremendous. Because it means that the universe and existence as we know it, um, it's not necessary to have evil there. Death and sorrow, suffering, are not necessary uh, components of existence. 
And you say, well, that all sounds so philosophical. Please don't think that. Because the point is that the Bible, and the Bible alone, has this interval. Oriental religion doesn't have that interval. Philosophies do not have that interval. No one else outside of the Bible has this story. This story cannot be found any other place other than the Bible and those rare tribes across the earth that are occasionally discovered that remember these stories from their heritage, from going back from father to son, father to son, father to son, all the way back uh, to, to uh, Noah. But this tells us something that is often overlooked around the world. Around the world is a tendency to develop what is called dualism. That is, there's a power of good and there's a power of evil. In fact, I'm sure that you've seen the symbol. Uh, you'll see the Oriental people have taken this symbol for the yin and the yang and so it appears, in, I think, in the Korean flag. Uh, but it goes something like this, if I can draw it right. And that symbol is, is the yin and the yang. And it's, it's carried into their cooking and so on, the sweet and the sour and so forth. They like to think in terms of dualism. Well, it's fine to have contrast, but be careful. There is no dualism in the Bible when it comes to good and evil. No dualism here. The fall is not equal and opposite to the creation. The fall is only the destruction of the creation and partial destruction at that. The power of evil is not equal and opposite to the power of good in the Bible. God is the creator and there is no other creator. Satan is not a creator. He's a creature. So evil is always something that is less, far less, than God himself. If we have the creator-creature distinction, evil comes in only at the creature level, not at the creator level. <clears throat> That's very important because the only answers <clears throat> that exist outside of the Bible, the only answers that exist to this problem are usually one of these two. Either there's a dualism that you'll find where people believe that good and evil are equal and opposite, powerful, both of them, and they're perpetually fighting with one another, or you have what we saw in the... Um, texts that we examined that were written back in the times of the Bible by the pagans surrounding Israel. And in those pagan pieces of literature, you observe that the gods and the goddesses themselves were evil. So the solution is either to have a dualism or to have evil gods, that, that the universe has always been evil. And so we've gone through that process and we've said that's why we, we drew this picture of the contrast that when you start with a pagan idea of an imperson ultimately impersonal universe in which both gods and men and goddesses dwell, good and evil go on and are inseparable and they're part of normality. Now you say again, isn't this too theoretical? Let me bring a modern problem that comes out of this whole discussion. Right now, we have a group of people, uh, and, and, and they're not unique because we've, our sin nature always wants to do this. So I'm not trying to pick on one group of people, but they make such a convenient target, I can't help it. Um, it's, it's the gay agenda that's going on. Now, these people are rich, they're powerful, and they're politically connected. And they've made vast inroads already into our culture. 
demanding that we legitimize and normalize the abnormal. But lest we get too picky and argue that and look down our noses at them, let's just look at ourselves. Because every time we cater to our flesh, we're doing the same thing. We're trying to normalize the abnormal. And it's always a tendency of fallen man to do that. Because if we don't do that, we're convicted by our conscience. Think about it. Either we're reminded when we sin that it's abnormal, that we weren't created to live this way, or, and of course then we have to deal with it, but if we don't want to deal with it, then another way possibly of dealing with it is to, to say, well, it's not really abnormal. It's like driving down the road with your car and all of a sudden the engine light comes on. And you decide, I don't want to stop for the engine light. Knock it out. No problem. And so that's exactly what goes on here. We try to legitimize and normalize the abnormal. So by saying in the Bible that the good and the evil began, the evil began at a point in time and ultimately will be terminated. What we have done here is say that in the Bible, evil is bracketed. That's what we mean. See those two points? That's what we mean by the fact that evil is bracketed. Evil has a starting. Evil has an ejection point. Evil will be dealt with, and it will be dealt with in a permanent way by a cosmic exclusion to the lake of fire, which is a, can be viewed as a, as, a cosmos, as a cosmic garbage dump forever and ever. It's not any, any mistake that the word for hell in the scriptures is Gehenna, which was the garbage dump in Jerusalem. You can go there. They have good restaurants down in that area right now, by the way. Um, and you can go down there and eat and eat in the, in the garbage dump. But it's, it's, they've cleaned it up, so it's not like it was in the ancient world. But in the ancient world, they just threw all the stuff down there because Jerusalem's on a hill, you know, just rolls downhill. And so that was the garbage dump. And it's interesting that the Lord Jesus Christ coined that word there, that Gehenna, the garbage dump, was his emblem of what hell is. It's a garbage dump for evil. So evil is discarded from the universe at a point in the future. Now, the challenge is this, that outside of the scriptures, nobody handles the problem. Everybody fusses about it, but nobody deals with a problem. Nobody has an origin of evil. Nobody has an end of evil. It is in the Bible and the Bible alone where evil is bracketed. It is never allowed to become a dualism. It is never allowed to ascend to the potency of God Almighty. God is supreme over evil. So, when we come and look at this diagram, we want to think about these three events because as we have creation in the fall, so now we have the flood and it doesn't require a, a, a doctorate to realize that the New Testament, every time it talks about the flood, every time it talks about the flood in Noah, it's always in the same context. It's always in the context of the return of Christ. Very interesting. Watch that. Look up it in concordance. Test it for yourself. <clears throat> every time New Testament authors think of Noah and they think of this climactic flood event, they think future to that great event of the return of Jesus Christ. So, there's a pattern to history. The beginning, the origin of evil, 
And finally, the answer to evil. Here we have the Bible answer to evil. Everybody's accusing us Bible-believing Christians, well, if your God was so great, if your God is so loving, how come He lets all this happen? Well, for starters, that's not the way the universe was when it left His hand. Who screwed up? God or man? So, let's get the blame where it belongs to start with. And then finally, let's say that eventually God does deal with the problem. And that's the theology of what we're looking at right here. Three events, and those three events give you stories. And that's why I hope you're reading the text as we go through this, these Thursday night classes. Because if someday you're, you're struggling with this, just in your mind's eye, picture the creation of Adam. Try to draw it to yourself in your own mind. Uh, uh, the, of God shaping this dust of the earth into a person. Try thinking in your mind's eye what it must have looked like when Eve and Adam ate of the fruit. Try to picture in your mind's eye Noah building the ark in the flood event. I mean, use the imagination powers of your mind. I mean, Satan uses these when we're tempted. He always uses our imaginations. Well, the Holy Spirit can use our imaginations too. And so get the artistic creativity going and think of these things and it will feed your theology and your doctrine so you can feel it emotionally as well as comprehend what's going on. That's why the Old Testament is so powerful, a vehicle for truth, because the Old Testament gives stories. The Old Testament doesn't just give precepts. It gives a story, a living story, an adventure story that you can remember. A child can remember this. But those stories are so structured that they encapsulate tremendous truth. Now, we've, in the last couple of evenings, we've dealt with the flood event uh, because we wanted to show you that the text of Scripture does, in fact, teach a universal flood. And we, to go back to the, to the, the issue here, in Genesis 6 to 8, you have the flood story. That flood story, taken at face value, is an obvious contradiction to what is known as historical geology. So, if we look at what we're taught as geophysical history and what the Bible teaches in Genesis 6, 7, and 8, we've got a big, big, messy conflict going. Undeniable. It's there. But we had the same problem in Genesis 1 to 2. Same problem. What the Bible reports happened seems so utterly different from the reconstructions of history. So, what we have done during this series is say, let's look in Genesis 6 to 8 like we did with Genesis 1 and 2. And let's just test how we're going to approach this. We can approach it from the standpoint of capitulation. That's one approach to the Bible. The liberals have tried that. And that is that the Bible is just a bunch of stories. So, hey, no problem. Just old stories as Moses' stories or something. And, and discard it as just interesting drama from past. That's capitulation. And eventually, of course, capitulation costs you because you can't hold on to the truth if you don't hold on to the story that shows the truth. Then you have the accommodationists. And those usually are born-again people who are just simply, frankly, overwhelmed. They're just overwhelmed in their faith and in their thinking. They're so overwhelmed by this problem that they just throw up their hands and say, well, we've got to make Genesis fit historical geology. We've got to make Genesis fit 
whatever the current role of, of scientific speculation is. And that we've seen work for 150 years and fail every time we try it. So that's why in the 20th century there are some very stubborn Christians who are what we call the counter-attacking type of Christians who are saying, wait a minute, we've gone 100 years, we've played this little accommodation game long enough, hasn't worked, so if there's a conflict between the Bible and the constructions of history that science gives us, there must be something systematically going on wrong in these historic constructions of science, not the Bible. And so we spent several, several, uh, several hours uh, studying this and, and coming up with several arguments of why, even if you disagree with what the word A-L-L means when it says all the mountains were covered, there are still arguments that show the global nature of the flood. One of those we said was the depth-time argument. And we said that was in Genesis 7, 19-20, where it's, it's a simple deduction that if Noah is reporting a flood in the Mesopotamian Valley, and for one year it covered all the hills such that a boat with a draft of 22 and a half feet never ran aground, where on earth do you hold that much water in the Mesopotamian Valley for one year while this whole thing's going on unless you have had a massive problem here? Moreover, if you look at the map, where does the ark wind up after it's all over? It winds up here in eastern Turkey. Now, if this was just a Mesopotamian flood, which way does the water go in the flood? goes toward the Persian Gulf. The ark should wind up down here. So the ark's going the wrong direction. So the depth-time argument simply says that the data of Scripture don't let you conclude that it is a local flood. And we said in addition to that argument, we said there was the argument about the ark itself. We said that that argument, that the ark had a certain design, it had a size, it was fully sufficient. <clears throat> and in the, uh, the handout that I passed out tonight, unfortunately, I, I, the end notes, uh, it doesn't mesh with the one that you've got handed out because I injected different things and my word processor did funny things to it. And furthermore, the, the end notes came spilling over on another page and it only had about two inches on it, so I didn't give you that because I didn't want to reproduce that extra page. But let me, while I'm thinking of it, so you can write this in the margin, I'll give you a reference. It's just been published. Uh, a seven-year study on the Ark of Noah. The author of this is a guy named John Woodmarapi. I'll spell that for you. John Woodmarapi uh, has been a, quite a diligent student. He's a Christian with two degrees, um, I think one in, in biology and one in geology. And he's written a report of a seven-year study just on the Ark of Noah. And it's called Noah's Ark, a Feasibility Study. And you can get it from ICR, the Institute for Creation Research, same outfit that uh, produces a lot of the Christian creationist materials. But that report is well worth it. The, the feasibility study by John Wood Morappi, he goes through the hundreds of arguments. He tried to go back through in seven years and answer every single objection to Noah's Ark. 
I mean, there have been all kinds of objections. The objection, for example, obvious one, is you can't fit all the animals in the ark. And he said, well, yes, you can. And he has improved on Morrison Whitcomb's book that they did back in 1961. And he shows that the ark could have taken uh, about only one-fourth of it was actually occupied by animals. Three-fourths of it was empty. <coughs> and if that's so, that sort of raises a theological question about the fact that God had plenty of room in the ark if more people had responded to the preaching of Noah. So the empty ark is actually a tragic reminder theologically of a lost opportunity, that salvation was broader than people who received it. And he goes into things like, well, how did that eight people handle all the manure? I mean, no, a little problem here. You've got a gene pool of the entire animal, land animal kingdom, and unless they hibernated, which is another theory, that the animals God hibernated in the ark, so their, their processes slowed down, you still have a little problem here. And so he goes through that. He has gone to ranchers. He has gone to people who work with animals. He's gotten statistics about what can and can't be done, related to the size of animals. I mean, it goes into everything. And I suggest that when you hear all these arguments, oh, well, I don't believe that. Well, half the people that say that never read the story anyway. Um, just remember, here's a good reference volume for you. And you'll learn more here than you ever wanted to ask. Okay. Let's go on. The design of the ark, we said, uh, and this is interesting. Henry Morris was the first guy to point this out, to my knowledge, but it was, has been pointed out numerous times since. Um, and that is that the ark was so big that there was not a naval vessel built in the human race until 1846 or so, 1850, that exceeded the size. Nowhere in human history was there ever a boat built this big until the 1850s. Moreover, if you look at the design, the flatness of this rectangle, and you can, you can do a thought experiment just looking at this picture, but if this is a scale drawing of the ark in, in scale, think of cutting a piece of wood that long, uh, that wide, little bolts of wood or something, and putting it in a, an aquarium. Then cut out another piece of wood that would be a perfect cube, like this. This is a typical pagan idea of, a, of an ark, weird design. And put it in the aquarium. And then do a little slosh experiment with the water in the aquarium. And start creating waves, or do it in a bathtub or something, create waves and watch which, which wood stabilizes. Now what's going to happen to a cube? It's going to tumble. But what happens to this thing? This thing, Morris has computed, you can compute the center of gravity and then you take the buoyancy principle and you see how the center of gravity is relative to the, to the buoyancy force and you can see how far this boat can rock without tipping over. And I'm not sure, but I, I, I remember the calculation, it can go up to something like 50 or 60 degrees and still right itself. So, I mean, we're talking a big stability here. <clears throat> so the arc design shows a cosmic purpose, a universal flood purpose. And we said the third thing that plays a role is the, and we spent considerable time in 2 Peter 3, because 2 Peter 3 is an apostolic interpretation of Genesis 6, 7, and 8. A very, very important passage. That passage, we said, in that passage, Peter speaks in, in terms that even dwarf the original text of Genesis 6 to 8. 
Peter says, he says, the heavens and the earth which were, and the heavens and the earth which are. Now, if we've read Genesis correctly, what do we know about that word pair? Heaven and earth when it's paired together. First place, where does it occur? First, first occurrence of this word pair in the Bible. Genesis 1.1. And what does heaven and earth refer to in Genesis 1.1? It refers to the universe. The universe. Not just planet earth, the entire universe. Well, P Peter's apparently teaching here is that the universe, number one, was before the flood. Universe number two is what we live in, and then he points to the third universe, which is the radical recreation, the resurrected universe. And we're talking big, heavy stuff here, folks. Big interruption to history. The entire universe was apparently involved in the flood, according to Peter in this passage. Amazing commentary. And you know, I've been a student of this for many years, and I've always, when I read an accommodationist or I read somebody that's trying to waffle on this issue, you know what I always do? I go back to the index in the back of the book or the back of the article and I look up if he's referred to 2 Peter 3, 5 through 7. And I have never seen an accommodationist deal with that. Never once. They always gloss over the one crucial New Testament guideline to interpreting Genesis 6, 7, and 8. Never discuss. Just go on. Try to make it a little local flood. Somebody's bathtub ran over something. All right, then we started last time trying to... Oh, and while we're here in Second Peter, there's another thing that I think is best introduced now. So turn to Second Peter 3 because there, there's something in the context of that that's very powerful. And we as Christians have got to come to grips with this idea. In 2 Peter 3, of course, the context is the second advent of Christ and what's going to happen. And in verse 4, Peter prefaces this commentary with a remark. So, four, verse 4 is the introduction to that section. Then verse 5, verse 6, and verse 7. Verse 5 talks about the first universe. Verse 7, the second universe. Verse 6, like packed between those two, like meat in a sandwich, with two, lo two pieces of bread. <coughs> verse 6 reports that the entire world was destroyed. Now, prior to that, in verse 4, Peter paraphrases the skeptic. This is one of the finest depictions of the fallacy of pagan thought that I know that's, that's encapsulated in one verse. I mean, there's, there's great things. There's the book of Ecclesiastes, there's Romans chapter 1. But if you want one verse in the Bible that tells you the theme of unbelief, here it is. Verse 4, And where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Look at the word continuing there. Now, back when we first started this course, I made a point about reason. 
And I said that no matter what you do in language, whether it's math or anything else, you have got to, you have got to, you cannot even, you can't stop breathing and you can't stop doing this. You have got to have a constant somewhere in the equation. Here's a simple linear equation. It will not work if you do not have A and B constant. You can't have an equation of total variables. And the other thing that you have to have is the rules of reason and logic that control the depiction of that equation. This is math, but you can do the same thing with a sentence, a lang piece of language. Get Cindy up here and she'll show you. You can have, you've got to, in order to have a sentence structure, you've got to have nouns or their substitutes that speak of categories that are going to endure. A dog has got to be a dog yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Can't be changing and mutating into a cat. Because if he does that, my sentence blows away because it's meaningless. It becomes a meaningless garbledygook. So I have to have categories that are rigid and stable, and I have to have rules of grammar. That used to be taught before they taught sex education, replaced it. But rules of grammar are necessary for communication, inference, and so on. So you have to have all of these things in order to make language work. Now here's the clinker. You can't get the constants from inside your head. Greeks proved that. And you can't get the constants from piling data upon data. Some people think you can. And we showed earlier this, this chart and all this fuzzy area here is human knowledge. The problem with it all is, it's always incomplete because I always get the next piece of data. How do I know the next piece of data isn't going to invalidate the pile of data I already have? See, I don't know what's constant unless I have what? Unless I have total knowledge, I can't really be sure my constants are going to hold up, right? So to have any knowledge at all, because remember, I've got to speak about it. I've got to compute it. I need constants to do that computing. I need constants to do that talking. I need constants to do that thinking. But my problem is that where do I get those from? I can't get them from data because my database is always finite. How do I get a universal, infinitely stable constant out of a finite database? You, you can talk scientific instruments all you want to, but after you've done it all, it's still a finite database. And always will be a finite database. So I can't think without somehow confessing I have got a universal. I've got rules of reason. The trick is, where do we get those from? The apostate, unbelieving mind wants to get them from something that is safe. The apostate, unbelieving, fleshly mind wants to protect itself from what it knows very well is God there. I mean, God is the source of the, of the... because it's one of his characteristics. Remember that attribute we studied? <coughs> his immutability. That's where the constant is. Well, what the pagan mind wants to do, it wants to erect a substitute constant, idolatry. It wants to have a God that's safe. 
that doesn't interfere, that doesn't make moral and spiritual demands, that I don't have to be accountable to. So, it tries to create things. Now, let's read what the verse again. Verse 4. Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, time passed. The next clause, watch this clause. Because wrapped into this clause is the doctrine of the autonomous man. get a blank sheet here. Let's look at that sentence. So important. I want to watch, I'll take that sentence apart. All continues as it was from the beginning. Subject. All. Verb. Continues. And not just continues, but continues as. There has been no fundamental changes. Do you see what that sentence is saying? All. There's your universal. That's the universal term in that sentence. And what is the verb? The verb makes the audacious claim that this universal has never changed. It truly is a universal. But wait a minute. How can a person like this say that? How do they know? There is a claim to perfect knowledge, at least of the past, isn't it? And what about the future is implied in this verse? That it's going to continue just as it was. So here we have the collision, <coughs> and this is at the heart, this is at the heart of the attack upon the Bible. The Bible presents a God, and we went through his attributes, that he is sovereign, he has all these attributes, and one of his attributes, that he is immutable, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And God will not permit anything else to be absolute point of reference than himself. And if that's the case, what I construct down here as a creature is subject to interruption. For example, the laws of physics of bread was interrupted when Jesus fed the loaves, remember? Multiplied the loaves. Hey, something was going on the molecules. Try doing that trick. What happened to the laws of physics that controlled yeast? What happened to the biochemistry that was going on there? It was interrupted. It was overridden. Suddenly, my equations that describe the, the behavior of yeast and bread and the biochemistry what do you do about that time interval, delta T, in which it was interrupted? You see, the problem is, if you don't want to confess God, and you want to keep God out of the picture, let's, let's just put our heads in that frame of reference for a minute. Let's just say, we don't want God to interfere. We don't want any outside reference point. But now, we have an interruption. What does that do to our whole thought process? If we need constants and universals to make our engine go up here, and we've got an interruption, what we have introduced is chaos. And that is the fear, and if you look at the thinkers that really oppose biblical Christianity, they'll all say this. In the final analysis, you read them far enough, and they'll all come to this conclusion. We will not put... This Bible is irrational. It's just one way they say that. What they mean is, not that it's not internally logical, 
what they mean when they say the Bible and you Bible fundamentalists, you're irrational people. What they mean is, is that you allow these, these tremendous interruptions and you've destroyed the basis of all reasoning. The answer is no, we haven't. We've destroyed the basis of apostate reasoning. But there's godly reasoning. And the godly reasoning isn't interrupted by these things because the godly reason depended on God, not these rules. The center of gravity of our thinking is to think God's thoughts after Him. That's why the Gospel of John begins, in the beginning was what? Was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. Now that word, logos, is a a code word for the second, second person of the Trinity, Jesus. But isn't it interesting what he's called? He's called the Logos. What's the Logos? It's the language. Here is where the constant is. Jesus' language. In the Genesis 1, what happens? How does God create in in Genesis 1? He creates by speaking. Language is the creation. It's the tool. Where is it coming from? A God who is immutable. Can he think in uninterrupted fashion with constants? Of course he can. And therefore, this makes the entire universe contingent on his word. If God hiccuped, the universe would quiver if not disappear. We are contingent, and it's that fear of being totally contingent and dependent upon an interfering God that whom I have to be responsible to that terrifies the non-Christian. And that's why they will never agree They will never, ever, as long as they're not Christians, agree unless God the Holy Spirit moves in their heart. They will not agree because they are terrified to agree. To admit this is to destroy all confidence in me, in the self. I can't do that. It's either God or me. And I don't want to deal with Him, so I've got to be me. So I'm going to build this defense. And I am not going to let you Christians pierce it. Because if I let you pierce it, I destroyed the whole basis of what I'm standing for here. So, this verse is just loaded in verse 4. All things continue as they were. Let us do our computing. Let us do our equation development. Let us do our predicting. Let us do our extrapolations. Let us do our statistics. On the assumption that all has continued... And on the basis of that, we find no evidence for a flood in Noah. We find no evidence of creation. Well, of course you don't. Because you set the equations up to destroy that. There was an ethical motive behind your equations. Equations weren't neutral. They were spiritually and ethically controlled and shaped. Don't ever forget this, because you get into the science thing here. Don't get blown out of the tub because somebody throws an equation your way. Math is just another language. It's all it is. And you can, use, you can curse in a language and you can curse in math. And it looks so neat and so impressive. But you can utter blasphemy with an equation. And if you write any equation that claims that you have an absolute... Where's my little equation chart? Well, if you have an equation as simple as this one, and you claim when you write that equation that those constants are universals, that are protected from any divine interference, you've blasphemed. That's an equation of unbelief. And no Christian can ever write a mathematical equation with that in his mind. All our equations are contingent. 
They are descriptions of his usual mode of operation. But you notice what else is in verse 4? It says, the promise of his coming. Now, to get a promise, what do we have to do? God has to speak a language. And so, you see, the Bible says, and this is why the flood story is so important, we're not just speaking of an interruption. We're speaking of a dynamic end to history, an end which is described by language of God's own mind. He has said ahead of time, I am going to do this. And I am going to do this to every last molecule in this universe. You watch. And unbelief in verse 4. Yeah, we're watching God. And I don't see it happening. Where's the promise? You see the blasphemy involved in this? So that's the, that's the ground motive behind the flood. And so we want to go on in the notes tonight and I want to show you, move on to the, uh, the last argument. We, we started this last week and we want to again show the cosmic nature of the flood and the fact that we're talking big stuff here. We're talking a universal change. Uh, on, the, on the notes, you, I had another version of the same thing. You can plot this on a piece of graph paper. I really do. Any of you inclined to graphs or you're an engineer by background, I mean, if you really want to thrill, just sit down. It'll only take you 10 or 15 minutes to do this little simple exercise. And I know it sounds simple, but just try it. Get a graph paper, set it up, and go through Genesis uh, 5 for here, and go through Genesis 10 and 11 for here and plot your points from the data, from Scripture. Every time somebody dies, you're given the age at death. Stick a point in the graph, and here's what you get. Now, after you've had done that exercise and played with a little graph paper for a minute, and you've seen that you can curve fit, and all you engineers will notice that's a nice exponential decay curve that you see there. When you have this feeling of... of the sensation of, look what this thing is telling me. Look at what this data is telling me here. Something momentous is happening. You get this sort of a thing in, in science when a capacitor discharges. You get it in, in, when you take a, a hot water bottle and you put cold ice in it and you twirl it with a thermometer. All kinds of things. When you go from one steady state to another steady state, that's when you get those kind of transitions. The Bible, now Moses didn't have his TI calculator and work all this out with a log scale. This is real data. And it's amazing. You know, critics, you know what the explanation of this data is from the critical point of view? The most usual explanation you run into to try to kiss this whole thing off is well, they must have changed the calendars. Well, now, you don't have to be a mathematician to think a moment. If I change the calendar, is that the kind of curve I'm going to get? going to get a step function when the calendar changes. It must have changed the calendar about a hundred times between Noah and Abraham to do that curve. So I, the critics just have wallowing all over the place. Better to just be honest and say, I don't believe it. You know, hey, than coming up with that stuff. So my point here in the fourth reason behind the global flood is that this shows you that it is a cosmic event. We can't make the flood a small thing. It is the event of all of the Bible that alone is pictured as the great complete picture of Jesus Christ's return. Okay.
Now we want to go and start drawing conclusions theologically. And if you come over to page 77, I'm going to list five characteristics in the notes, five characteristics of the flood story that will give you a picture of salvation. I want you to be so impressed with the saving work of God that you'll not be fuzzy and think of the gospel ever again as some sort of weak, anemic, psychological experience. Okay? So many times in our day we think of, uh, oh, so-and-so had a religious experience. Well, so do the Buddha people have religious experiences. The Hindus have religious experience. So what? Hey, you know, we eat three meals a day. So what? That's not the issue. The issue is what is salvation? When God saves, what does He do? Well, one of the first big, big ideas to notice from the story of Noah is you can't have salvation unless you already have judgment. These two are married together in the Bible. Now, you ever go back and, and think about, well, why are these two things married together? Well, they're married together because what is the reason for salvation? It's to get rid of evil, isn't it? Isn't that the whole story? Well, if you're going to get rid of evil, then you've got to have judgment. So you can't have a saving work of God without having a judging work of God. But notice something. We said in this section, it says God's intervention of judgment and salvation. If you think back to the way we started, and this is why I started tonight with, with the uh, slide that shows these events, because I wanted to prepare you and prepare the way you think about the flood. The creation story is the, is the total story of, of every atom, every molecule, every soul, every angel. Everything is in place. Then we destroy it with a fall into sin. So we've introduced chaos, we've introduced suffering, we've introduced death, we've introduced strife because we creatures have chosen that course of disobedience. Now, we have, we have contaminated the whole thing. So the whole universe is now cursed. John Wesley's hymn, or Charles Wesley's hymn, I think we sing at Christmas time, I can't think of it, it's a Christmas carol, and it says, uh, as far as the curse is found, or something, there's a refrain in there, I can't think of it, but some of you that can sing, remember what the... Well, what's the, it's a Christmas hymn, I can't think of it. What? Joy to the world, yeah. 
Okay, very interesting. Wesley and Hymns weren't like some of our modern hymn writers. They studied their Bibles pretty carefully. And when he said that the salvation is out to the limit as far as the curse is found, what he is saying is that the curse, being universal, has to have a universal answer. And the answer for salvation, and if you can just grasp this, it'll keep you grace-oriented, it'll keep you from drifting into good worksisms and all the little heresies that come along and all the cults. Here's the deal. If the universe was created perfect, and if the entire universe was contaminated, every molecule, every person, you know, the whole thing has been ruined, then doesn't it follow that the creation can't save itself? Doesn't it follow that whatever saving work has to be done has to come from outside? There has to be an intervention. God, the creator, the one who created it originally, has to come in. It seems to be so elementary, so simple, and we lose the big picture. If, and it goes back to the, what I've said all along, if you lose your sense of creation and your sense of the fall, you cannot protect a proper doctrine of salvation. Being straight in the gospel requires that you be straight in creation in the fall. Otherwise, you're trying, to, you're trying to diagnose something wrongly, and when you get a wrong diagnosis, you get a wrong solution to the problem. If we understand the radical nature of creation in the fall, then we will understand that whatever salvation happens, it has got to come from outside. It's got to be an intervention. Whether it's God working in our lives, is to sanctify us. We're never sanctified without pain. Why is that? Because something's being judged in our life at that point. And God's saying, time to move on, fella. You know? Out. That, that gets out of your life and this gets in. So, we have these little mini-interventions. These personal crises, even in our Christian growth. And it's always God intervening. Come on, we're not doing it. We don't want to do it. But we're kicked in the behind to do it. Because we constantly get intervene, intervene, intervene. It's got to be that way. So that's the argument against good works. Good works can only work if you have a weak fall. And every religion that has a works-based salvation, basically, you can tell right away, has a very, very trivial and shallow view of what sin's all about. Hasn't got a clue. So the first point we're making in, in, in this uh, outline, page 77, is that... The first great characteristic when God goes to work is He gives a gracious warning. You always have Him being gracious before the judgment. He doesn't just suddenly clobber somebody. There is grace. The, the Noah story, you read the story, the ark didn't just appear on the block of the downtown city square one afternoon, right? This thing was a project took a number of years. People had to walk by and see it. If we want to get a proper analogy for our 20th century minds, think of it this way. Think of it as a, as a group of people who suddenly get a message that the planet Earth is going to be destroyed. And the scientists mock them, well, we can't see any asteroid coming our way. But, but these group of people say, no, the Earth is going to be destroyed. I don't believe that. And then you begin to see these people building a rocket ship. Spaceship. Space field. Oh, this is ridiculous. Come on. 
Same thing. Noah was building a boat. They'd never seen a boat this big. Never had been rain before. What are you talking about? Rain? What's rain? They're talking about a physical event that they've never seen, never empirically observed, not part of their data set. And yet, here these people act this way. Well, it constituted a preaching of righteousness. It wasn't just that Noah preached righteousness verbally. He did that probably. But he also preached by his life. He sat there and he built this ark and he was condemning the world because by saying, building that ark, he was saying, it's all through. History's done. It's over with. And what, what, is the, what is the passionate concern of the sinful heart? Don't disturb me, God. I'm trying to build my empire here. Now, see how threatening it is to have somebody sitting there building an ark? The very fact the ark is being built dooms. It's a message of doom. You don't build arcs unless the world is doomed. So it sends a message. And that's the point. Whenever God works in our lives, in Scripture, it's always grace before judgment. But herein is another aspect. Grace can be considered, in a sense, an abnormal extension of his love. Grace can be seen as, as an abnormality. How do I say that? What do I mean by abnormal love? Because from creation, it was not needed. Grace was a, was a sign of love after we have the abnormality of the fall come into place. And now grace is love having to deal with disobedience, with sin, and unrighteousness. But you see, there's an inner tension. Grace is always in tension with the holiness of God. And it can't go on forever. And there comes an end of grace. And this is, a, this is something that's not a popular message. The day of grace will one day be over. Grace does not go on and on and on. And it's precisely this that's so ironic about people that fuss about all the suffering in the world. They don't realize that when they're asking to end all the suffering in the world, what are they also asking to end? Grace. Because it's grace that lets the suffering go on to allow people to respond before the boom is lowered. So when you say, I want to get rid of all the suffering, okay, when? It's all done with. That's what happens. Well, I didn't mean to kind of end it that way. Well, how do you mean it then? If evil is evil, it's got to be eradicated. Yeah, but, but can't there be kind of an in-between, little demilitarized zone? No, God doesn't work that way. So, the first feature of salvation is this grace factor that is a temporary factor. The second thing that we learn through the flood, outlined on the next page, is what I call perfect discrimination. Meaning that God can separate. In a, you have perfect separation. Perfect separation. Nobody was accidentally left outside of the boat. Notice the Peter quote I have here from 2 Peter 2. And by the way, do you notice how the flood story must have impressed the Apostle Peter? And he's got more to say about the flood than all the other writers of the Bible. You know why he might have? What was Peter's profession? The fisherman. So it's not unusual 
that maybe boats fascinated him. He got into this flood story. That was pretty neat. God preserved Noah with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. The Lord knows. And see, Peter applies it to us. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. He, he, he ascertained that by a careful study of this flood. God doesn't judge statistically. It wasn't that the center of the bell-shaped curve happened to be the ark. And we just lost the tail on the right and left side. No, no. There were eight and only eight people that had responded to God's grace. Only eight found grace in His sight. And everyone else did not. There is only a, the, the, the whole human race is divided into two sets. And they are mutually exclusive sets. And God does the sorting. This is rather sobering material. There's no fuzziness here. There's no hesitancy here. You could say, well, sure, you know, how did he make sure that the believers were all in one place or in one family? I mean, you mean everybody in Noah's day rebelled? Apparently so. What does it say here? It says, God knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. So we have another attribute of God here, and that is the attribute of His holiness. God is a holy God, and His holiness will discriminate. He calls the shots. They are His to call. They are His standards to set up, and there are no arguments about what the standard is. His and His alone. So, we'll go on in, in ensuing nights. You'll see the one coming up, the one way of salvation. This page in the notes doesn't match with the next page because that's when my word processor jumped around and I somehow messed up the text. But the one way of salvation we're going to get into next time because that's a central objection. Everybody has the gospel. Oh, you Christians are so bigoted. Uh, one way of salvation. Why? Well, there's a reason why. There weren't two boats. There's only one. There wasn't a cube and a rectangle. There was only a rectangle. For reasons. Reasons why this was so. God has his reasons. Alright, so we're starting now to examine the doctrines of salvation using the richness of the story of the flood. Okay? And I want you, as we go on in the story, if you look at the notes, read the Genesis story. If you haven't read it, please read it through Genesis 6, 7, and 8. And just... Sit there and let your mind soak in. You start, turn on the power of your imagination. Turn off the boob tube and stop letting the television give you your Im imagination. Use the stuff that God has, the TV picture in your head, and use that one to think about the richness of the story and the greatness of this salvation. Father, we thank you for your saving intervention. We thank you that you do love the world. You are gracious. And yet, Father, it's sobering to think that you won't forever be gracious. That grace stops in the future. And may we live our lives in the knowledge of that. For we ask this again in Christ's name. Amen.
I don't think anything did, Vinny, and I think that was precisely the problem, that he was looked upon as a weirdo. Because we've got to think in terms, if, if we were writing the story, I always try to picture myself as a, a movie producer or an author. And if you were assigned the project, um, Vinny, uh, I want you to produce a film um, uh, of the days of Noah. And you think about how you'd screenwrite the thing. How do you explain in your screenwrite that the entire planet Earth, nobody believes except him and his family? It what strikes me, there's not one person outside of that family that got on the boat. Well, I mean, when you think that the people that lived in Noah's day had experienced the stories told them by men who lived 900 years. So the day, I think it was Methuselah, I think, would die just before the flood. I think if you work out the ages or something. So all the people that were adults in Noah's day had, theoretically at least, access to people who knew the sons of Adam. I mean, that's how close they were to creation and how far down they deteriorated. It's amazing. Uh, tremendous debauchery. And that's one of the things we get into after the flood. Um, why capital punishment, for example, happens. And people can't understand, well, that's not awful a cruel thing to happen. Well, there's reasons for that, too. But something blinded that whole generation. Absolutely couldn't believe it. It's just too incredible. There's no precedent involved. And you must be mad. That was... Yeah. Yes, and, and you know it's interesting how uh, the Bible depicts the fact after the flood Noah falls, and so it also shows you that he wasn't Mr. Perfect either. But the point was, you're right that that obviously that gives a, a credence to the power of a family, because when salvation, when when you had to declare which side of the fence you were going to go on. You, it was broken on a family line. So I think that sort of says something about the, the unit of the family. Right. Anyone else? I probably try to do too much in too few minutes. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, it, it's usually culture shock for a lot of people to be faced with that, but um, I'm convinced personally that, uh, in fact, I was just talking here to a, uh, to a believer who, who was commenting on that, that until people start to ask the questions, you can't ram the answer. And you've got to stimulate the questions because the gospel is an answer. And it's a stupid thing. The gospel is an absolutely uncredible, silly-sounding message if you're not asking the right questions. And if you think about how you were personally came to the Lord, you know, some of you may have had people try to force it on you, and you can probably remember tuning it out. I can remember going by signs that said, Jesus saves. This was in, when I was a kid. I wasn't a Christian. Jesus saves what? And there was a sarcastic remark, he saves saving stamps. I mean, that's what people would say in, in my generation that saw that. 
Absolutely meaningless message. Didn't have a clue what was going on. But then, when God started bringing me to himself and started doing things that woke me up, the fact that, hey, i got some big problems here. Then when, I, then when we start talking about Jesus says, now we're, we're listening. We're tuned to the right frequency. But you can't send the message if the receiver's not turned on. So you've got to turn the receiver on to hear. So. Yes, Marsha. They're not. I mean, if you take a radical view, and that's what I forgot to do tonight, and I was going to start the lesson that way, completely blew my mind. Um, hmm. What I was going to do was finish up where we were the other night when we were dealing with that map of Eden. Uh, because if you if you just say, see see the problem is if you look at the map of the text in Genesis two with the four rivers coming out and so on, you can't make sense of that in today's uh, geography. I mean, people like Martin Luther, John Calvin, it's not us that's observing it. These guys knew it. Luther says right frankly, he says that this this is this is a different earth. And, and, and one of the great Old Testament scholars was uh, uh, right here at Johns Hopkins for many years, William Albright. He's the father of American archaeology. Up until Dr. Albright teaching at Johns Hopkins, the Americans didn't have any archaeology to speak of. He was the father of it in this country. And in his early days, he, he was a very much of a liberal. And he, I don't know, he, you wouldn't classify him as he approached the end of his life as an evangelical, but he wrote a book to, called Toward a More Conservative View. It's a very famous article he wrote. And he said, after 40 years of digging in the Middle East, he says, I haven't found any case where I could sustain uh, the early criticisms of the Scripture. Every, every time I've dug and I've encountered data in the, in, the, in the record, it's confirmed the Scriptures. So he says, I've come to the conclusion that the Bible is a, is a historically valid document. Powerful words from a man of his prestige. And... Um, he, in 1922, at the beginning of his career, Johns Hopkins, wrote this book called uh, The Mythical Land of Eden. And it's a classic case. Uh, you can read it because he goes through this map, Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, and he says, this doesn't fit. This is a memory of, of some far-off, weird fantasy land. And he says it's sort of like the, the, the odd memories of the tribes elsewhere in other continents that have this, this myth about the golden age that once existed and it, the strange features of this golden age. Well, I think it's strange because it was strange by our standards. And so the way to view that, because two of the rivers that are in there are mentioned, Tigris and Euphrates. And uh, the, I think that if you think about cities that we have in our country, like New York or York, Pennsylvania. Now, if you were a student 100 years from now, and this, you know, we nuked ourselves or something. The whole civilization was dead, and you were digging around, and you found evidence of a place in Pennsylvania called York. And then your colleagues that were digging in Europe found this place called York in England. 
And you begin to say, what is happening here? How could we have two cities? One must have come from the other. And you might infer then, if you if you've got somehow the dating right and so on, you'd say, well, that York over there is younger than this York. But I'll bet you the people that settled this York must have come from that York. And so that's the kind of stuff that might have gone on so that what we call the Tigris and Euphrates, which, by the way, you look on a map, where, they, where is the fountainhead of the Tigris and Euphrates river system? It's in the Ararat area. So presumably they were one of the first two rivers that were seen by the sons of Noah. And when they hunted around for names, they said, well, why don't we just name that for the river we knew in the previous world? So that's probably how a lot of the names were transferred. Uh, uh, there's the city of Enoch, and, and those names, and yet you see the cities of similar names in the, uh, in the um, after the flood, post-flood. So anyhow, that's, uh, that issue of the terrain is, I think, just another evidence besides this longevity curve that changes sharply, that we're dealing with something so incomprehensible, so shocking, that it's just hard to, to, to even think about it. The way I try to discipline my mind to think about it is think about the earth as almost, if I took a time machine back prior to the time of Noah, I would have a hard time seeing the planet for earth. It would be so different. And when, then, when I start thinking that way, then I think, but wait a minute, when I took historical geology in school, wasn't that what they taught? Because if you have the pictures in geology textbooks, they always show you how the continents changed and the, there was these vast changes. So really, they do the same thing. It's just that they drag it out over time, whereas the Bible uh, compresses the time scale. But the Bible is, is telling us something, something was different. Something happened with the flood. And you can't minimize and trivialize it. And I think it's a warning because the very people and the very mentality that wants to trivialize the flood of Noah is the same exact mentality that wants to trivialize what? The return of Christ. We don't want anything to interfere with our lives like the return of Christ. Come on. Give me a break. So, so there's, a, there's an ethical, spiritual motive here to sweep this whole thing aside. And the flood of Noah is a sharp reminder and isn't it striking that when Peter wants to discuss the return of Christ, the one event that comes back to his mind is the flood of Noah. Well, why that? Why does he do that? And if you remember Jesus in this Mount Olivet Discourse, what did Jesus say? As in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the Son of Man. And I think this profound truth in there... Um, Vinny's question about in Noah's day, what evidence did the people have that he was right? Uh, he ap appeared weird. Well, don't we appear weird? I mean, think about it. Aren't we weird going around talking about the second advent of Christ? You know, as an astronomer that sees the second advent of Christ coming in a telescope? There's no, er there's no astronomical evidence of the, of the return of Christ. You can go through the whole universe and not find any, any hints that, that the Christ is coming. What equations tell me that Christ is coming? I don't know of any equations based on today's data that tell me Christ is coming. Well, it was the same thing in, in Noah's day. 
you know, you can, uh, if you were creating a movie, you could have some neat fun with dialogues and have Noah sitting there and discussing this with a scientist of his time. Noah, you're crazy. Absolutely crazy. We haven't got a shred of evidence that there's going to be any disruption in the universe. See the stars, Noah? They've been there since creation. Do you see any of the stars exploding, Noah? Do you see any, any signs in the heavens of any great catastrophe on the way? No, no. The, and the Bible observes, and there's another little observation in the text, and they knew not until the water came. So that evidently, the day that that flood started and God opened the fountains of the deep, there wasn't a physical clue. The only thing that Morris and Whitcomb say that might have been a clue was the fact that the animals began to come to the ark. And he suggests, and it's just a, just a speculation, that the fountains of the deep, uh, there was a, a beginning had to have vibrations. And animals get very upset before an earthquake. It's like they can detect the earth starting to move and we, before we can. And dogs would go crazy and cats go crazy and everything, according to people who live in California. And, uh, uh, and then, boom, it's like they have that sense. But the problem with explaining it quite that way is why did two, only two of each kind come? So, so there was angelic, there must have been an angelic interference somehow. I mean, maybe there were little angelic shepherds leading these guys along on a little leash or something up to the ark. We're not told how. But why, for example, weren't there 15 dinosaurs beaten on the door? Only two. Now, how come? And we don't know. I think it was supernatural. I think the Genesis text it reports something so profound and it tricks us in a way because it reports it like it was just normal history. And so we sit there with our eyes and we go through that text and read it and we're hypnotized by how regular and normal it appears and we just zip right on through and then uh, you, there's these, these little mystery things. I want to show you some of these little mysteries if you're a careful student of observations. Well, let's watch some of the mysteries in that text. We're all so familiar with it. But let me just show you some things that people have looked at and wondered about. I might have to look at the time here. Um, verse in chapter six, you have God coming to Noah with the announcement. Verse thirteen. Now, notice He comes to Noah. He doesn't come to the whole earth. This is a private message. We don't have any report in this text of that message being boomed across a big PA system. Like, for example, it happened at Mount Sinai. Ten Commandments. Man, I sat down. You know, I've been to the Mount Horeb, the, the traditional site of Mount Sinai. And there's an open valley that heads west from that place. And you can imagine a big voice in that valley reverberating down this place. But here, it's a, it's a quiet message. It's quiet and it's private. The, the, the plan is given. It says in verse 19 and 20... You shall bring two of every kind, but then it says not to the ark, but into the ark. Notice the preposition. You bring it into the ark. So that's not necessarily, we always get the picture that Noah and his, and his family are herding these people up to the ark. And 
there's another verse later on that suggests that the animals came to them and then they opened the door and brought them aboard. But they didn't go searching all over the place for these animals. Um, you'll notice in verse 21, some of all food which is edible, it shall be food for you and for them. So clearly, all the food supply in the ark had to be gathered by this, this that family. And it's a picture of man's helping animals. We want a humane society message. Here it is. Who saved the gene pool? You know, these people are, they, they're so worried about bringing God into the classroom. You know, it would be slick on Earth Day sometime to come and write an essay on the most fantastic contribution man has ever made to the environment and tell the story of Noah. See what they do with that one. I'll pay for your lawyer if you get in trouble. Um, so, uh, but, but now notice, um, uh, going down here, the, the strict timetable. Verse 4 of chapter 7. After seven more days, I send rain to the earth. Notice that the seven, the number seven is what? It's a week. So the very structure of creation week and so on is embedded in the time structure. Um, notice in verse 6. The exact year of the flood is exactly when he was 600 years old. You notice it says, um, verse 9, it talks about the animals and it says, they there went into the ark to Noah by twos, male and female, as God commanded Noah. Now it says God commanded Noah, and that's back up in chapter 6, you bring them in, but then it said there went unto Noah. And, and it's, it's a, who's doing what here? I mean, you can sit there and ponder that for some time about how do the animals get to the ark? Did they just migrate there? And what does it mean? They went into the ark by twos, but then it says, but God commanded Noah. Notice in verse 10, the exact time. After seven days, the water of the flood came upon the earth. Then the same day, in verse 11, all the flood fountains of the great deep burst open. The floodgates of the sky were opened. So the water came from below as well as from above. Some of you are familiar with the Jewish writer Josephus. Uh, if you're in a Christian bookstore sometime and you just want, for, you know, grins, um, you ought to get Josephus. Uh, called, he wrote a book called Antiquities of the Jews. And the reason why that's kind of a neat book to get is because Josephus was a contemporary of Jesus. And so he writes about what Jews thought in Jesus' day. He even mentions Jesus in the Antiquities of the Jews. So these people, yeah, okay, oh, Jesus never mentioned outside the Bible. Oh, yeah? What about Josephus? Well, Josephus reports all these traditions that the Jews believed in Jesus' day. Stuff that's not in our Bible. And one of the, one of the things they believed about this verse, in verse 11, where it says the fountains of the great deep burst open. They, they, they had memories of this in their Jewish tradition about they were geysers of steam and they, they, they boiled people alive. The water that was coming up from the earth and you'd think, well, geologically, that, that makes sense that these subterranean waters were hot and when these, these people were fried. And this may be one reason, perhaps, we don't know, why there's so few human fossils in the, rock, in the rock record. You know, you'd think, well, what happened to all these people? Why are they, don't we encounter more bones in some of the deeper layers? Um, but maybe they were in one area or whatever. 
Um, notice in, in 12, the rain actually only lasted 40 days and 40 nights. But I guarantee you, to get rain to last 40 days and 40 nights requires some stupendous atmospherics that we don't have. Now you can say, well, I've been around here when it's rained five, seven days. Yeah, but the reason it's rained seven days is because the moisture was being transported into this area. But on the rest of the earth, it wasn't raining seven days. Other parts of the earth were giving up moisture to be transported here so it could rain. But here, it's raining upon the earth. This is all over the place. So the question is, where is this water coming from? And that's a big question. You, you look at this text, and it's 40 days and 40 nights, and nobody ever thinks, where did this rain come from? One explanation for the 40 days and 40 nights is that you, this hot water was just continually evaporating and raining down again, evaporating, raining down again. So there's a number of thoughts about this. I'm just trying to show you that when you read through this text, don't read through it at 40 miles an hour. Just take it a little clause by clause and observe. Observe. Ask questions of the text. Um, and, you, and it goes on, and of course you have this, uh, the, the story of the dove and uh, the fact that he sent out a raven and the dove found no resting place in verse 9 of chapter 8. So she returned to the ark. The water was on the surface of the earth. He put out his hand. He took her. He waited seven more days. The dove came back and in her beak was a freshly picked olive leaf. And people say, oh, 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 see, there's the story. Couldn't, couldn't sprout and grow like that. If you read the book, The Genesis Flood, Morris deals with that question. So there's a lot of details in the text. And unbelievers like to, to seize on every little thing they can to nitpick text. And so our side has spent a lot of hours researching this, and I assure you there are answers to this, to these things. Um, and, and you'll notice the care in verse 13 of chapter 8. It came in the 601st year, the first month, the first of the day. You notice the first? See, it was one year. The flood was just one year. What a year that was. And Noah removed the covering of the ark, looked, and behold, the surface of the ground was dried up, and so forth and so on. So there's strange things in the text, details that you need to pay attention to. In chapter 7, there's that uh, verse about the Lord, closed it in verse 16 of chapter 7. What does that mean? How did the Lord close the door of the ark? You ever think about that? It says the Lord closed it. It doesn't say God closed it, notice. It says the Lord closed it. And everyone you see the word Lord is Yahweh. And that means that's the personal nature of the covenant God. Was this a theophany? Did God appear and walk up a plank or, or come up to the edge of the boat and shut the thing and seal it? What did he do to it? The Bible just leaves us in suspense. The Holy Spirit never tells us what he did or how he did it. So those are the, uh, the things that you want to... To, to look at as you as you read this kind of material. All right, next time we're going to go. Uh, if you'll read chapter eight, the last part about verse twenty, and read chapter nine, and we'll talk about uh, we'll end the flood. But uh, I want to finish next next time. I want to finish the theological reflection on the flood event. But if you'll read ahead, that's going to be the the next the the, the next great event we deal with, which is the Noahic covenant. So next week you'll get the last, well, no, tonight you've got the last of this chapter. Next time we'll, we'll talk about that and hand you the first part of the last chapter, which is chapter 6. Okay?